0: it now? Can you hear me? It's like clockwork. That's what that is. So uh, our elders and our staff have had a kind of staycation weekend and a time of investing into them and a time of rest. Uh, as you heard, Aaron got back from vacation and got a time of rest. So that means you're stuck with me, who's not an elder and not on staff. Thank you. Well, I was, with, uh, I was with Pastor Don this morning at a Chinese church out in the West End. And uh, they did something that we've never been able to do here. They limited him to about 25 minutes. Um, and he told me that I needed to carry on the torch for him. So we'll see how long I go today. Um, it's a privilege to continue the series that we've been in as a church. And we've been talking about verses that have been misunderstood or taken out of context. And so a few weeks ago, Aaron rebranded it straight out of context. And they're these well-known passages of scripture, well-known verses, that over years of misinterpretation, they don't mean what we actually think they mean. We've cherry-picked them, and we've twisted them away from the original intent that God and the original authors had for them. Well, well today, um, I'm going to wrap up that series, and it's possible that I've bitten off a little bit more than I can chew. Uh, I'm not talking about a, a single verse or a single passage, or even a single book in scripture. Today, where I want us to dive in and understand what's been taken out of context is the gospel itself. Remember that the gospel means good news. It's the central message of Christianity. It's the central message of the Bible. And so over, over years, and as I've been in dialogue with people like David Bailey, and with Doug, and with Aaron... And as I've studied, and I'll just show you here the the books that I was working through as we prepared uh, for for this sermon, as I've studied and learned and spent time here in this neighborhood and spent time vocationally in Haiti and around the world, it's become clear that if I were to ask this question in a few words or sentences, what is the gospel, I'm sure that I would get A variety of responses but I'm willing to bet that most of our responses will be rooted in a common framework a common framework that's often called the plan of salvation and it's the basis of nearly every method of presenting or teaching the gospel particularly here in America and now has spread all across the world for decades and even centuries and if you've been trained or taught to share your faith you've probably been taught That the gospel is best defined through a framework that uses the plan of salvation. So what do I mean by this? Well, let me give you one of these frameworks. Maybe you've heard the plan of salvation presented with the illustration of a bridge. I remember the very first time that I saw this. I was 10 years old. Uh, It was a Wednesday night. And uh, the church that that I grew up in, on Wednesday nights, we had kids clubs and youth group and a lot of different classes. Well, Well, my class had been canceled. And so I went with my older sister in the youth group. And the youth pastor, he was training all the teens how to share their faith. And this was the method that he used. And so it starts off with a problem. The problem of sin. You see, we're on one side of this great chasm and God's on the other. There's this separation between us because all of us have sinned. And all of us are now separated from God. And this sin, it has consequences. You see, we could try to build bridges to get across that chasm, to get across that divide. We could try to do good works. Or we could try to have faith or find a religion. But ultimately, anything that we generate is going to lead to death. We can't actually cross that divide. But there's a solution. You see, because Jesus has come, because he died on the cross... And he took the penalty of our sin. He made a bridge across that chasm. He made a bridge through his death on the cross. And if we believe in Jesus and accept him into our heart, if we respond by praying a prayer, now we can get across that chasm. We can bring Jesus into our heart. And we can cross that bridge to eternal life with God in heaven. So that's one way that the plan of salvation has been taught. Well, maybe you've heard another way. Uh, It's called the Romans Road to Salvation. And it draws from the book of Romans. And it takes four verses. I remember 12 years ago, being in the south side at another urban church, when I was on a missions trip. And we gathered with about 40 other people to go door-to-door evangelism. And there was somebody there who had just become a Christian two weeks earlier. And he had memorized the Romans Road to Salvation. And now he was going out. He was so excited. We were all so excited for him. Two weeks earlier, he had been in a life of drugs and in a life of crime. But Jesus had done something incredible in his life, and now he was going out to tell people what God had done for him. And so this is how it works. We start with a verse like Romans 3.23, that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the problem. And this problem, again, it has consequences. Because the wages of sin is death. But there is a solution to our problem. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And now all we have to do is respond. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And this is powerful stuff, isn't it? And there are other tools, other frameworks. Evangelism explosion, the four spiritual laws. And each of them is slightly different, but they all draw from this plan of salvation. There's a problem of sin a consequence of death that separates us from God and condemns us to judgment but God has given us a solution through the death of Jesus on the cross and if we respond and ask him into our heart we'll be saved from judgment and enter into eternal life with God in heaven and now let me pause here and say something really important I don't want you to walk away from this service today and think that what I'm saying is that this is wrong or that this isn't true it is true. Even as I shared them, didn't you hear the power in those words? Didn't you hear the words of life that can bring us over from death and judgment into flourishing life with Jesus? There are many people, millions of people, all across our country, all over our world, who have brought, been brought into God's family and into the kingdom through tools like this. Through the plan of salvation. But here is what I am saying. When we boil down the gospel to this kind of framework. With just a, a few verses pulled out of the book of Romans. Or a simple illustration of a bridge. We are missing a much bigger picture. Here's the thing. It's like taking a movie that you've never seen. And taking ten minutes out of the middle of it. And just watching those ten minutes. Okay. Okay so let, let, let's use a real example and if I spoil something for you I'm just going to say shame on you this movie has been out for nine months you should have seen it by now <laughs> let's take Black Panther and let's say you just watched ten minutes of the climactic battle at the end you'll probably figure out that T'Challa is the good guy You'll probably figure out that Killmonger is the bad guy. And you'll know who to root for and who to root against. You'll know who wins. You'll know who's on T'Challa's side and who's on Killmonger's side. But if that's all you see, you are actually going to miss what's driving the central conflict of the story. You'll miss that there's this debate that's going on at the heart of Wakanda. In a world that is filled with oppression and brokenness, in a world that has oppressed and colonized every other country in Africa, how is Wakanda supposed to engage with that world? You'll miss the questions about sonship and identity, mercy and justice that drive T'Challa. You will miss, you will miss all of the suffering, the personal suffering, the systemic suffering that Killmonger has experienced, and that's driving him on this quest Misguided as it is, it's driving him on this quest for liberation and vengeance on a global scale In other words, if all you see is just 10 minutes of the climactic battle You'll get a few things about the story right But you're going to get a whole lot of other things really, really wrong And so what's the problem here with the plan of salvation? What's the problem when we just take that on its own and miss the larger context? Well, when you boil it all the way down, it makes the Christian faith all about bringing your soul into heaven It's a fire insurance plan to escape the fires of hell. The logical response actually becomes something that we've seen on TV. It becomes the response of Bart Simpson when he's presented with the plan of salvation. Can we put the sound in? Sorry, I didn't cue you on this. (laughs) Dramatic pause. Dramatic pause. This is what happens when the staff and the elders are away. Let me know when we're good. Good to go? I figure I'll go for the life of sin, followed by the presto death deathbed repentance. Wow, that's a good angle. That's what we end up turning it into. One more time. Okay, we'll do it one more time. I figure I'll go for the life of sin, followed by the presto changer, deathbed repentance. Wow, that's a good angle. Bart has heard the gospel. He has heard that he needs to change and repent. The preacher is actually holding his slingshot in the in that episode. He's taken it from him and said, you need to turn and repent from your wicked ways. And he says, that's okay. I'm just going to continue down the road I'm going. And when at the last possible second I have to, I'll repent. I'll change. I'll accept the plan of salvation. But what's even sadder than that, what's even sadder than what Bart is doing, is that when somebody says that they're a Christian, and they've accepted that plan of salvation, they've secured their eternal destination, and now they think everything else is optional. Justice is optional. Living an upright and holy life is optional. Doing the Bible and dying to self, optional. And and that's just for us as individuals. What about whole societies? One of the great leaders of the Native American church was a man named Richard Twist. And in a book that was published just a few years ago, just after he died, It was called Rescuing the Gospel from the Cowboys. And he talked about this plan of salvation that had been presented to his people for hundreds and hundreds of years. Four centuries that native peoples in America have had contact with missionaries and have heard the plan of salvation. And yet so few native Americans follow Jesus. Why? Because while missionaries were preaching to them, their government was taking away their land. And their government was slaughtering their people. Missionaries themselves were taking children away from native families. Into institutions where they were abused. And where they were taught to forget their culture. Forget their identity. This wasn't good news. It was bad news. You see, we need a gospel that doesn't just come out of one book of the Bible. It comes from all 66 books of the Bible. We need a gospel that lets us see the bigger picture of what God has done throughout history, and in the pages of Scripture. We need to see the full picture of what God is doing right now, and what He's calling us into in this neighborhood. And we need to see the fullness of what He's promised for the future, for the end of time, when He returns and He makes everything right. And so what I want to share with you in the next few minutes is, isn't something that I came up with? It's a framework that many scholars and leaders have been working on over the last few years. You'll hear echoes of what David and Elena have shared in the Erebon Curriculum. You'll see that many of the illustrations and the phrases that I share with you today are adapted from a framework called the big story. And there's a book about that by James Chung that you can check out and you can see a condensed version of what I'll share with you today. You see this telling of the gospel, it unfolds in four great acts, four chapters that take us not only through the Bible but through all of human history. Creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. And so you'll see, as we move through this, I'm going to pull a pastor, Don. I'm going to throw a lot at you. We're going to zoom through a lot of slides. I'm going to carry on what he started this morning, and maybe we'll get out of here in time. Maybe we won't. But we begin with creation, where everything was designed for good. And you see, in ancient times, this was a really radical idea, that the earth and humanity had been made with intention and with purpose. You see, in the stories that many other ancient peoples told, the earth, it emerged out of conflicts and war. You see, there was one famous story that the people who heard Genesis for the very first time would all have known. It was called the Enuma Elish. And in that myth, in that story about how the world came to be, there were these two gods named Tiamat and Marduk. And they went to war with each other. They fought each other. And Marduk, he won. He kills Tiamat he cuts her body in half. And with one half of the body, he creates the sky. And with the other half of the body, he creates the earth. And with her blood, he makes human beings. Because all the rest of the gods are whining and complaining that since they're all at war with each other, they don't have anybody to worship them and honor them. Gee, I wonder why. And so, in this story, a world that's filled with brokenness and suffering Well, that's the way that it was meant to be. Because this world emerged out of conflict and violence. And if you were a lowly peasant who was serving a great king, and all you knew that was that your life was supposed to be all about them, well, that was the way the world was supposed to be. Because you were created to serve greater beings than yourself. But that's not the story of Genesis. That's not the story of the good news of the Bible. You see, this good news... This gospel, this story, is that God designed everything to be good. He made the earth with intention and with purpose. And then he made humanity in his image to rule over all that he had made. Not just some people, not just kings and queens. All people. And you see, he made humanity, he made each of us with four key relationships. Our relationship first with God. And then our relationship with ourselves. Our relationship with other people. And then finally our relationship with the rest of creation. And so what did this look like in the beginning? How did all of this work? Well, in the first place, when creation was designed and when everything was made for good, our relationship with God was beautiful. We were designed to walk with God and obey God. And so Genesis tells us that Adam and Eve, they walked with God in the cool of the day. They had direct access. And when they first started out, they were living in complete dependence and obedience to God. In His presence. Our relationship with ourselves. You see, Adam and Eve, they knew because God had told them right then and there. They knew because they were face to face with Him. That they had been made in His image. And they knew that that was the core of their identity. They were different than every other living being. Face to face with their creator. Face to face with the one who had made them in his image. Because they knew that they were made in that image, they knew that they were made to be in relationship with one another, to serve and to love. You see, it doesn't say that God made Adam in his image. It says, in the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. Humanity was designed to be perfectly in sync, in service and love, together, bearing the image of God. That was the only way. Together, not just one individual. Only together could they bear God's image. And then what was their relationship with all the rest of creation? Well, they could see because they were made in the image of a creator that now they were to rule and to extend that very act of creation. To take the sounds that they could make with their vocal cords. And now to create language and music. To take the wheat that God had put on the earth and to make bread. To take the trees that God had made in the earth and to create art and to create shelter and to create lumber. To spread out all over the earth. This is what God commands. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And as they spread out across many different climates and places they would create new cultures. They would create new languages, new customs. They would begin to look different as they adapted some places that were dark uh, and, and didn't have a lot of light. Other places where the sun shone many hours of the day. And that all together, as they bore the image of God, they would rule over the earth that God had created. They would share in what He was doing to rule over and to extend all of creation. And this was the way that it was meant to be. This was the way that it was designed. But then something happened. In Genesis 3, we see that the world that God designed for good was hijacked by evil. And so the good things that God had created fell. And this is when we enter that second chapter. We move from creation to the fall. Adam and Eve turn away from God. They're tempted by Satan. And they decide that rather than to let him have his rule and his reign and, in, and to share in that, they want to replace God. They want to be like God. And they want to push him to the side so that it could be their rule and their reign over all of creation. And so because of this, all of these relationships are broken. And so what does it look like? Their relationship with God sin and idolatry enters into it and now they are separated from god they hide from him when he enters the garden in the cool of the day and isn't this the situation that so many of us now find ourselves in cut off from the source of life hiding from god because we know that we can't stand to be in his presence because of what the sin and the evil in our lives And the relationship with self, separated from God, Adam and Eve, they could no longer remember that the most important thing about them was that they were made in the image of God. They were enough before. But now, because they had sinned, they realized that they were naked. And because they could no longer remember that most important fact about them, that they bore the image of God, they were ashamed of their image. And they tried to cover themselves up with fig leaves. And in the same way, today... All of us, we try to use anything else, success or power, relationships, substances, behaviors, to cover ourselves up, to be the core of our identity, to make ourselves good enough. It's just a modern day variation on a fig leaf. In their relationship with others, they move from serving and loving each other to conflict and exploitation. Now they were in conflict with one another. They were fighting with one another. They were bickering with one another. And this would have its end in their children, Cain and Abel. And Cain would murder Abel. And in the chapters of Genesis that follow, we see account after account of division and war and violence and exploitation. And in their relationship with creation, instead of, ruling over and extending in the way that God would have them rule and extend and create. Now they were just exploiting and destroying. They took the things that God had designed for good and twisted it to evil. There were still some things that they created, like music and language that were beautiful. But alongside that, they created weapons of war and tools of exploitation, designed to kill and to steal and destroy. Everything that God had designed for good had been hijacked by evil. We ourselves had been hijacked by evil, and now we were extending not just the goodness of God, but the sin and destruction. And at this stage, God had every right to wipe out humanity and creation. He had every right to pour out His wrath. And friends, He still does. If God is good, and if He's holy, and if He's just, He has to punish the kind of evil that we see in Genesis chapter 3 and 4 and 5 and 6. He has to punish the kind of evil that we see in our world today. The kind of evil that rips children away from their parents and puts them in cages. The kind of evil that shoots unarmed men in the back. The kind of evil that responds to those things with apathy and consumption. The kind of evil that will condemn children to a school with a toxic building just because of the color of their skin. God has to punish that. He can't stand it. He can't bear it. And the problem is, friends, that that evil is inside of all of us. I remember the words of the great Russian thinker and writer, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was impressed and imprisoned by the communists. And in his time under imprisonment and under torture, he reflected that if there were only evil people somewhere else, Insidiously committing evil deeds. Wouldn't it be so simple? All that would be necessary would be to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the problem is that the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who wants to destroy a piece of their own heart? That's the situation that we find ourselves in. Designed for good. But hijacked by evil. Perpetuating the sin and the brokenness of our father and our mother, Adam and Eve. But the good news is that God doesn't just leave the story there. He has every right to judge us. He has every right to judge humanity. But in Genesis chapter 12, he kicks off the next chapter. What started in creation and goes to the fall, now goes to the the journey of healing. That is redemption. It doesn't come all at once. We don't just jump straight from Genesis 11 to Jesus. We have to go through all the rest of the books of the Bible. We have to see what God is up to in history. And in Genesis chapter 12, he chooses a man named Abram. And he says to him, I know you're way too old to have children. I know your wife, Sarai, is way too old to have children. But you are going to be the father and the mother of a great nation, a nation that calls me its father, the people of Israel, a nation that depends on me and a nation through which I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth and begin this process, this journey of healing and restoring everything that was destroyed and everything that was hijacked by evil. And so over the course of the Old Testament, we see the people of Israel begin the journey of healing to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And again, we see what happens in their relationship with God. They are given a tabernacle and then a temple, a place where God's presence can come and dwell so that they can connect with him again. They're given a system of sacrifices to cover over the sin that separates them from God so that once a year the high priest can bear to stand in his presence and intercede on behalf of the sins of all the people. In their relationship with themselves, they are reminded over and over and over again in times of chaos, in times of defeat, in times of slavery, that they are God's chosen people and that He is for them, and that He will always be there to rescue them. That's their identity. They are not like the other nations of the earth. They have been chosen by God to depend on God, to be a healing to the nations. And in their relationship with others, He gives them a law, and He gives them a system of government, and a system of ordering their culture and their society, that is designed to do something that no other nation and no other system and no other culture had at that time. To protect the vulnerable, to care for the poor and the stranger, for the widow and the orphan. He gave them a a command that every seven years they were to have a Sabbath year. And they were to rest from their work. And they were to let the widows and the orphans, the poor and the vulnerable, pick the fruits of their fields. And then every 50th year was to be a year of jubilee. A year of the Lord's favor. When every debt would be forgiven. When every slave would be freed. And then they were to steward and preserve and be God's stewards in all of creation. To let the land lie fallow every seven years so that it could heal and be renewed. To begin to create stories and songs and poetry and art that reflected who God was to carry the message of creation and fall and redemption to the nations to create these cultural artifacts where everybody would hear and learn about who this God was and friends, this journey was not a straight line journey time and time again, they failed time and time again, God had to rescue them from their sins time and time again, God had to say you've sinned, but I'm returning to you time and time again They missed the mark. Even the year of Jubilee. Most scholars believe that they never actually did it. This pinnacle of what was supposed to be the system to serve and protect the vulnerable and to demonstrate their utter reliance on the God of the universe. Most scholars believe they never did it. But God was still faithful. He kept them on the journey. He kept saving them and bringing them back. And this journey... Had its final destination. Its climax. In the person of Jesus. The journey of healing. Over thousands of years. And centuries. Came to its final resting place. In one man. Who embodied everything that Israel was supposed to be. You see this Jesus. He was the son of David. He was the king of kings and the lord of lords in that line and lineage he was a prophet like every like those prophets that had come before but better than every one of those prophets that had come before and when the people of Israel saw him standing on a mountain giving them the law how could they help but think of Moses who had come down from the mountain bearing ten commandments but this time Jesus wasn't preaching just a law that was about their outward behavior he was preaching a law that would reshape their hearts And when he raised people from the dead, how could they not help but see Elijah and Elisha who had raised people from the dead, these great prophets. You see, he was the embodiment of everything that they were supposed to be, but had failed at. He was doing all of it. And so he was one with the Father, fully in his presence. He would pull away to pray and spend time early in the morning. And everything he would do was what the Father had commanded him to do. Just the way that Israel should have done it. And with his, in his relationship with himself, he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was the beloved chosen one of God. And he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt the mission that God had sent him on. From the age of 12, he knew the mission that God had sent him on. And he remembered that above everything else. In his relationship with others, he broke every barrier. And he embodied everything that Israel should have been doing to serve and protect the vulnerable. And when he begins his ministry, Luke 4 tells us, he says, I proclaim to you the year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee. And he says, all of this is now being fulfilled in your hearing. The thing that Israel had never done, he was kicking it off in his life, his ministry. And in creation, he was the master of the wind and the waves. He calmed the seas. He stopped the wind. He took five loaves and two fish and turned it into enough food to feed 5,000. He had power over death to bring things that had died back to life. He was all of these things because he was fully God and fully man. And the journey that Israel had begun that was now having its climax in his life had to go through a death on a cross. That Jesus now, fully God, fully man, had to suffer all of the things that would have been meant not just for Israel, not just for Adam and Eve, but for all of humanity, for you and for me. And Jesus was the one who had the power to take that on so that all of us could be completely forgiven. He was the one who had the power to take that on so that evil could be defeated. Because He was God Himself. He could take on our sin and our brokenness to death on a cross. You see, He could be the judge who judged Himself and not us. And He didn't just do this to save and heal individual people. He did it to save and to heal all of creation. To take everything that had been broken, all of these relationships, and to repair them and restore them. You see, this is what the book of Colossians, this is what Paul says in the book of Colossians about what Jesus did and who he was. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth. Things visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things and in Him all things hold together. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him. And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things. Not just people. All things. Whether things in earth or things in heaven. By making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Colossians Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 17 and 19 through 20. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood, shed on the cross, reconciling all things. And so in doing that, in dying a death that we couldn't die, in judging Himself instead of judging us, God in Christ finishes the story and the chapter of redemption and brings us into the chapter that we're in today new creation where all of us if we will be people who follow Jesus and be people of his kingdom get to be sent together to rebuild and restore and to continue the work that he inaugurated on the cross and through his resurrection you see, when he comes back to life, three days later, don't miss this. Jesus dies on the sixth day of the week. He says, it is finished. And then he gives up his life. And on the sixth day of creation, God, and Jesus was there, because that is what the scripture tells us, that he was in the beginning. And He through him, all things that have been made were made through him. God says that he is finished The work of creation. And on the seventh day, he rests. And then we get to pick up, Adam and Eve get to pick up that work of creation. And so Jesus, he dies on the sixth day of the week. He goes into the tomb. On the seventh day, he is asleep. And John tells us that on the first day of the week, the women go to the tomb and they find that it is empty. And many of the women, they leave. But Mary Magdalene, she stays behind. She is so distraught. She thinks that people have stolen the body of Jesus. But then Jesus comes to her. He is resurrected. And Mary mistakes Jesus. They're sitting in a garden. And she mistakes Jesus for a gardener. That's not a mistake. She is seeing Jesus for who he really is. He is God inaugurating once again new creation, to begin to restore everything that was broken, to transform it, to heal it, to renew it, and to make it new. And so this is what we get to do. We get to do the same thing that Adam and Eve get to do. Now we're the church, God's chosen people, sent out into the world. And we have a relationship with God that allows us to be with Him, to walk with Him and obey. We have a relationship with ourselves that allows us to know what we're called to do and called to be, that we've been made in his image. We know now that we've been... that. And the slides are dying on me. Can you, uh, Shakim? can you advance? And can you move things forward? Yep, where we get... Okay, it's just my phone. That's the last one. That's it. And so, yeah, we can take it back and bring, that, bring all of that up again. two more and stop Uh, you guys saw it you know it you know it and so that's what we get to do and that's what the church throughout history has had the opportunity to do and so this is the message that we've been given this is a story that not only we've been given and that we get to proclaim but we get to live we get to be a part of god's healing work we get to be a part of God's healing work because God's healing work is being extended to us. And so the thing that we now have to remember that we've been made in His image, that we've been forgiven and we've been healed from our brokenness and our sin. And though there is still work to be done and there is there there, there is sin in our lives and there are still things to be healed, the victory's already been won. It's like what we understand about the Civil War. And about the journey from slavery to emancipation. You see, Lincoln, he writes the Emancipation Proclamation. And he actually doesn't proclaim it. He puts it in a drawer. And he proc- and he wants to proclaim that slaves will be freed. But he's not sure that the Union is going to win the war. He's not sure that he can do this. But then, in 1862, there's a battle. The Battle of Antietam. And that's good enough. That's good enough, the victory is enough, that he can proclaim, yes, we are going to free all of the slaves. But the slaves in the South, they they don't hear that yet. They've been declared, it has happened. The victory is assured. They are going to be freed. And that is the space that we live in. We live in that space between emancipation and Juneteenth, when the slaves in Texas heard the news and were able to walk out of their plantations freed from their chains and their shackles. We live in that space. The victory has already been won. Jesus Christ has done it on the cross and he has risen again. And he is coming back. The end of this conflict is coming. It is all but assured. And in the interim time, we are called to be people who are fighting those last battles to restore all of creation, to proclaim what Jesus has done and then to be the people who are living that out. And then at the end of time, when Jesus returns, he's not going to catch us up into a heaven that's far away from this place. He's going to bring heaven down to us. That's why he prays and that's why Henry prayed in front of us. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Revelations tells us Not that the earth will be destroyed, but that the earth will be transformed. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. And what what started in a garden will end in a city, a new Jerusalem. And Jesus will be at the center of this city. And the light that comes from his glory will shine day and night. And the Bible, the revelation tells us that the kings of the earth will bring their glory into the gates of that city. And what the scholars tell us is that means that the things that we are doing today The work that we are doing today, and the cultural artifacts, the music, and the songs that we create today. The tools, and the weapons, and the ideas that bring flourishing and healing to our city, and to our world. They're going to last. Our bodies, yes, they will die, but then they'll be resurrected and transformed. And they'll be brought into that new Jerusalem. And so that everything we do today is just as vital as what we will do in the afterlife because there's going to be no separation. Because the resurrection has happened, there will be one seamless transition from this life into this life just transformed and purified and made whole. That's the promise of new creation. And so what are the implications for us as a body? What might God be saying to us for us to do and embody in this place and as we go out from here? Well, let me just say two things. The first is that we desperately need each other. You see, uh, when when we talk about this grand scope of the good news and of the gospel, it makes everything so much harder. It makes everything so much more complicated. It means that there is so much more to do. In the plan of salvation, all we have to do is proclaim a message. But in a good news and a gospel that emerges from all of scripture, we don't just have to proclaim what God has done. Now we have to embody and live out what God wants to do in us. We have to be a community marked by reconciliation and justice. And we have to be working towards reconciliation and justice in our community. And we also have to be lifting up the name of Jesus. And we also have to be proclaiming what He has done. We've got to do all of it. Anything that you are imagining that the church is sent to do, we have to be doing all of it. And that's not something that any single one of us can do on our own. And so that's why Paul uses the analogy of a body. Many different parts, but all under the lordship of Christ and pursuing the common mission that he's called us to. And that's why we need each other. And so that's why people who are prophetic need people who are going to be evangelistic, who need people who are going to be about justice, who need people who are going to be about contemplation and spending time in the presence of the Lord. We all need each other. And, yet, and we are all called to do different things, but we also need to learn from each other. And to sharpen the rough edges of our walk by walking with one another. And so I need to go to somebody who's prophetic and be like, teach me. Help me understand what it is you're doing. And I need to submit myself to Pastor Don and to Leslie and say, teach me. Help me understand what it is, this life of contemplation and prayer. And I need to submit myself to people like David and say, teach me. How do I continue to work for reconciliation and justice? And that's what all of us need to do together. We need each other. But more than we need each other, we need to constantly remember the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That even in all of our complete insufficiency, the Romans road, the plan of salvation, the bridge illustration, they're still true. In their proper context, they teach us that we are not enough. That we cannot possibly do it on our own. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That once we were enemies of God, but through His death and resurrection, Jesus has turned us into His friends. And that in this journey, we are going to fail. We are going to fail dramatically. We are going to fail catastrophically. There may, in fact, come a day when this local body ceases to exist. Because most local bodies of church cease to exist. They die. But we know that because of God's grace, the work will continue on. and That even if you fail dramatically and catastrophically, God's work is going to continue on. There is nothing you can do, there's nothing I can do that can stop His work of redemption. In the world and in my life, He has proclaimed it. He has said it once and amen. We have been caught up together under the blood of Jesus. His mercy has been extended to us. And so if you have accepted that, you have the assurance that He will complete the work that He began in you. We may not see it now. We may not see it today or in 10 years. We may pass into the grave, but we know That Jesus came back to life, and everything in our lives that will fail and die will also be resurrected. And this is the mercy that we throw ourselves on again, day after day after day. And so, as the worship team comes back up, and as we begin to sing songs of this mercy and this salvation and this mission, if this is a story that you've never heard before, know that today you can enter into it. Know that today you can say, yes, this is what I want my life to be about. I want to stop going the way that I've been going. I want to stop being hijacked by evil. And I want to return to what God designed for good. And I know that there's a journey of healing that Jesus began long ago, but that had me in mind. And that that journey of healing can go through my life today. And that if I would just lay down my sin and my sorrow at the foot of Jesus and ask Him to enter into my life, I can be sent together with all of God's people to rebuild and restore not only my life, but this community and this world. And that I will trust from this day forward in what Jesus has done. And what he is still doing in all of the world. Amen.
1: Chan, thank you for that word. I honestly feel so grateful to um, have spent the past... 40-45 40-45 minutes hearing the scriptures opened in such a beautiful and articulate way. I'm reminded of Luke chapter 24. After Jesus had um, risen from the grave, uh, there was two men he met on the road to Emmaus. And uh, the people on the, the men on the road to Emmaus didn't really know who it was that was speaking to them, right? It hadn't been revealed to them that it was actually Jesus. But Jesus began to talk to them and open up the scriptures and share the message of the gospel of what his work was actually about and The men are recorded as saying, didn't our hearts burn within us when this man opened up the scriptures to us? And I know that there's some of us in this room, our hearts are burning within us at the revelation, at the illumination of the beautiful, mysterious, revealed, glorious plan of our God to bring all of heaven and earth, men, women, and children into his fold. He's redeeming all of it. And so, uh, as Chan said, this is an opportunity for us to respond to God's word bodily. I want to speak to those of us in here who have not made a decision to follow Jesus Christ yet. There might be some of us in here who have never said, yes, I want to be a Christian but you're hearing and sitting under this message and you're like, yo, my life is lacking purpose and vision and I want to be a part of this. I pray that this would be the time that you make a decision for Jesus Christ and it's not just for the saving of your soul. Hear that. That's a great and tremendous gift, but it's also for you to join a body that's on the move of redeeming the whole of creation. It's about you and it's more than you. So if you're here in this room today and you're one and you're questioning, is this for me? I invite you. Our prayer team is going to be stand, They're going to be posted up. Um, I invite you to come and pray with uh, one of our elders, with one of our prayer team, that we can touch and agree with you. The time is now. The opportunity is present. Don't wait any longer. And there's some of us in the room who have made a decision to follow Jesus, who know the Lord, have been walking with the Lord. But as we sat under the Word this evening. We were pressed, we were hit with, man, my life isn't reflecting the fullness of the gospel. Or, Lord, I want to lean more into every single part of your redemption plan that I have access to. I want to give the fullness of my heart, my mind, my body, my soul to your call and to your mission. So if that's you today, I invite you to come and receive prayer that we would touch and agree with you. I'm hearing the rain fall on the ceiling. We all heard it. I heard everybody saw everybody like looking out the door, like, is it raining? It's raining. And my prayer tonight is just like the clouds have opened up over this part of Richmond, that the, that the spirit of God supernaturally would open up heaven over this room right now. And that the Spirit of God would pour out fresh on us. And that the Spirit of God would liberate us and free us. And that the Spirit of God would stretch himself out in us. So that we can be the people of God that God has called us to be. So in this time of response, I challenge you to reflect. And think on the person of Jesus and on the mighty work of God that's just been shown to us. And respond in the way that the spirit is leading to you. Pay attention to your body. Is your heart pounding? Do you feel like the shakes, the chills, all of that? Listen, this is the Holy Spirit speaking to you right now. I pray pray that you would be obedient and respond in the hands of the worship team now.